May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always accepted when you recite to the Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You've heard the phrase, it's business as usual. That's what they say, don't they? Business as usual. There's actually a technical term, a, um, a business term. It, it means literally the normal execution of standard functional operations within an organization. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It is the normal execution of standard functional operations. Business as usual. It's how we do things. It's our protocol. It's the normal operational paths that everyone expects, the management and the employees and all the people to do these sort of things. And business as usual is comforting to people within an organization because it's predictable. You sort of know what the expectations are. You fulfill those expectations and, and you do those sort of things. You, you're empowered to act knowing what you're supposed to do in certain situations. And it takes away the sort of precariousness of, of making a decision on the fly. You know, this is the way we do things. Business as usual. There's another way the phrase is used. Business as usual. And it refers to avoiding external distractions. From an organization point of view. So if you're in an organization um, and there's something going on outside or, or sort of, uh, you know, uh, extraneous to what you're doing, it, you're, you're not distracted by those. Um, I r- was reading just uh, this week um, this uh, Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Perhaps you heard about this. United Auto Workers was, was trying, um, was it perhaps invited? I don't know what they, they were trying to organize the, uh, the labor pool of the, Vol- the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga. They wanted to, to make it a UAW plant, and it would have been like the first one, I, I suppose, in the southern part of the United States, where automobile from a foreign manufacturer was organized um, by the UAW. I don't know anything about the laws or regulations regarding such things. That is well above my pay grade um, and, and be, well beyond my interest, to be honest with you. But what I do know is that there has some sort of vote, and presumably it took a majority vote um, the, there were 1,300 employees, 700 of them roughly voted against it and 600 in favor of it, and so the motion failed. And the UAW was, was not allowed or permitted to represent those employees. My point, though, in telling you this story is that from a, an organizational point of view, the people who worked in that plant would have been easily distracted by the whole hoopla considering what was going on outside of the plant about the UAWs coming in. The senator of the state, the governor, were on television. You know, they were talking about this event and were lobbying against it. There were other people from the union and for what, other people per, presumably from inside of the plant who were doing this the opposite. And you know what happens in these sorts of things. Accusations, caricatures, uh, gloom and doom. The world will stop spinning on its axis if we do or do not make this thing happen. It was a big to-do. Volkswagen seemed to be, as a corporation, a little indifferent. You know, hey, we'll just wait and see how this thing plays out. You know how they do. Not coming out with any public statement for or against. We're just going to wait and we'll respect whatever the people want to do. So on, so on. But you know that they were at least saying inwardly, hey, let's set aside this distraction and go back to business as usual when we clock in, right? We're here to make cars. Let's make cars, you know. Well, these other things sort of sort themselves out. But right now, let's go back to business as usual. Keep making cars despite the distraction. 
Organizations need business as usual practices. I mean, we sort of need those expectations. What are we supposed to do? How do we, how do we go about our daily life? How do we avoid distractions and kind of get back on task when they come in? Because sometimes, you know, we can be distracted. Sometimes we can have, you know, indecision. We need business as usual practices. But then there are other times when the business as usual practices actually distract from the mission itself. That's when things get really complicated, isn't it? Hypothetically. I mean, just suppose. This would never, ever happen. But just suppose that a police department said, you know, for instance, we need a certain number of speeding citations issued in a particular month. I know. Could never happen, right? But just suppose, just for the sake of argument, that it did, you know? It would be possible in such a situation for a police officer to be so focused on the number of citations that she or he issued that they actually were oblivious to larger, more significant crime that was happening around them. It might even be, perish the thought, that being so focused on this, uh, you know, issuing of citations, that they felt that maybe they needed to write a citation where one didn't really exist, you know? Like, was that number on my radar detector a 75 or an 85? I got confused. I mean, now, again, wouldn't happen. But you could see where a business-as-usual practice might actually come into conflict with the underlying mission of the organization. The police department are to protect the citizens, not to write tickets. <laughs> I mean, they write tickets as a way of protecting the citizens, not the other way around. You got that, right? Another one, a hospital. Suppose a hospital was so focused on documentation, and documentation is important, right? I mean, you don't want to go into a hospital for a gallbladder surgery and have your appendix removed, or worse, you know, you don't want that to happen, you know. I always feel like if I go in for a surgery sometime, I've never been in for surgery, but I'm going to like write with magic marker on my body, you know, like this is the part right here, I want you to work on this. Um, you, you want to make sure that you have proper documentation. It, it, these things have to be written down. But if your nursing staff became so overwhelmed with documenting things that they couldn't actually serve the patients, well, then the underlying mission of the organization would be in jeopardy. It would be in peril, wouldn't it? Hospitals are about making sick people well, not writing documents. I mean, this is the the thing, right? So, So you have to balance. The business as usual practices sometimes have to be reviewed in light of the overall mission. You know this is going somewhere, don't you? Jesus in the Gospel. Sermon on the Mount. Last week we were in it again. Return to it. And here Jesus is actually challenging what you might call business as usual sort of practices regarding the law and ethics. How that people carry out a moral, ethical life in the world. Uh, I mentioned last week that, that I really agree with the, the New Testament scholar R.T. France who says that this sermon was not preached to the masses, it was preached to Jesus' closest disciples. It wasn't like the artwork that you see where thousands of people are scattered around. It's probably just dozens of people who are around. You know, the closest followers of Jesus are kind of huddled together on the mountain and he is teaching them. And I think what he is saying to them 
is this is the standard by which those who follow me will identify themselves. I mentioned uh, this week in our we had a midweek healing service that that um, if you're in a foreign country you should always find the embassy you know because the American embassy I mean because that's home you know if anything ever happens you need to you go there there are people who will protect you they will secure your your life with their very lives the way to know that you're at the American embassy though is the flag up on top of the building no matter what country you're in the stars and stripes will be flying on the top of that building. That is a sign that you have, you have reached you know, the, the, the protection of the, of the government of the United States of America. I think Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, these ethical standards, these, 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 these guidelines for living, this, this view of how to live a moral and right life, is the marker by which you will be known in the world. People will know that you belong to me, that you belong to God's kingdom because of the way you live. This is going to be the marker, the identifying marker. Ethics, the normative standards for what is good. But what makes this sermon really interesting to me, the Sermon on the Mount, is that by the time Jesus comes along in the first century... It's not like he's the first person to ever have thought about ethics, right? There have been there have been thousands of years of people ruminating on the good and what it means to live the good life. There are ancient Egyptian codes on what it means to live the good life. There is the ancient Mesopotamian code, the Code of Hammurabi, which is a, a reflection on what it means to live an ethical good life. There is... The Bible, I mean the Torah, there are the, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah, these reflections on the good life or what it means to live the standard of good. So Jesus isn't offering the first of anything. In fact, he's reflecting upon all these other, um, these other teachings. You see this clearly. Open up, if you would, your, your, your bulletin to the gospel lesson. Will you look at it with me? The very first line in the gospel lesson today from verse 21, listen to how it begins. You have heard that it was said of those of ancient times. You have heard that it was said. You, you know this, right? Verse 27, about uh, uh, you know, six verses down. You have heard that it was said. You should not commit adultery. Verse 31, a few more down. It was also said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said. You have heard, you have heard, you have heard. But I say to you, you have heard, but I say to you, you have heard, but I say to you, you all this, this, this antithetical setup, you have heard all this, it was said, it was said by those of ancient times, but I'm saying this to you. Jesus' approach to ethics is not a novel approach in that it's the first one. It is novel in that it sets upon its head all of the ancient teachings and the way that, it, that they went about them. Look at the first example. You have heard that it was said of those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be, you will be liable to judgment. Of course you shouldn't murder somebody. <laughs> of course you shouldn't. I mean, that's like kindergarten. I, I mean, you know, no, you shouldn't murder anybody. That's wrong. 
as a priest, if somebody you know talks to me about like religion and they they clearly have had no experience in in Christian religion or any other, you know that you know we're on an airplane or in a pub or wherever we might be, and they're like, oh, you know, I never really go to church, you know, but I'm a good person. And you know what they say following that? I mean, like I wouldn't never kill anybody or anything. <laughs> I mean, well, of course you wouldn't kill anybody. You shouldn't do that. That's not the point Jesus seems to be saying. The point of the commandment is not to give you the extreme limit to evil. Look deeper. Look at the very next verse, verse 23. When you're offering your offering, excuse me, when you are <laughs> so when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. The point of the sixth commandment is not to say, how far can we go in in disliking a person? How far can you go in hating a person? How far can you go in in creating havoc in a person's life? Well, you can do everything up to killing them. No, Jesus says, that's actually the opposite point that the commandment is trying to make. The point of the commandment is not to restrain the limit of evil. It is rather to point out the positive ethic. The commandment is there to remind you that God's design is for friendship and love and kindness and reconciliation. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. That's what he means earlier on where he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The point of the commandment is not to simply restrain from murder but to affirm that we should love one another and treat one another with kindness, gentleness, decency, and goodness. And it works the same way with adultery, doesn't it? It's the same principle. Adultery isn't limited to simply sleeping with someone else's spouse. It's about considering it and plotting it and working through it. This text is really quite interesting because I think what Jesus is saying is not just simply another woman. He says when you look upon a woman in lust, I think what he's saying is another person's wife. And, and, and then you contemplate it and fantasize about it and work it out. That's what he's saying. That does not... I mean, this is what, what is destroying marriage is not simply the divorce issue. It is really backing it up, isn't it? If one is fulfilling a requirement to love one's spouse, you wouldn't even worry about the issue of divorce because it never comes into play. As a clergyman, I, I always have people who come to me in, in marital uh, crisis. If someone's in a marital crisis, if they don't go directly to a lawyer, they usually stop by me on the way, okay? This is, this is part of the job. And, and so there are, you know, usually the list of complaints. You know, he did, she did, she said, she said, you know how it goes. And at some point I'll say to them, well, have you kept your vows, and someone will say to me, usually or often, yes, I have not cheated on her. I have not cheated on him with any other person. And I always say to them, congratulations, that's really good. But that wasn't the first one. I promise to love, honor, and cherish. So tell me, how are you doing with loving, honoring, and cherishing? Tell me about those. And that's when things get real quiet, you know, <laughs> because loving, honoring, and cherishing go out long before you get to the clergyman's office on the way to the lawyer. See, these, when you do these things, you protect, you don't have to worry about the commandment. It's protected way before that. And this is Jesus' point. 
The same thing is true with retributive justice. The same thing is true with speaking truthfulness, let your yes be yes. If people spoke the truth, you wouldn't have to have them take vows, would you? <laughs> if they just trusted them and, and knew that what they said was always the truth, we wouldn't require oaths of truthfulness. The principle Jesus is saying is there is something deeper in the law that goes well beyond the final limit of action. And that is the motive, the desire, the the willfulness to do good instead of evil. For love, faithfulness, honesty, gentleness, forgiveness. And that these virtues among the people who follow him ought to be normative. If we are the followers of Jesus then we ought to be identified. Our flag, our representative, whatever it is, ought to be the way that we carry out our lives and our conduct. They should be normative for God's people. There was a story of this, um, this older bishop. He was well into his 90s, had since retired. But his church, one of his churches, had brought him back, you know, when he was the rector of many years before, had brought him back for this sort of celebration service, and they, they brought the bishop and... and um, and they had the bishop there, and, and they said, would you do a children's sermon? And, and the bishop said, well, you know, what am I going to say to a bunch of little kids, you know? And, and, and right before the service, and so he said, I, yeah, I, I'm sure I can. And so, um, you know, right at the front of the service, and he, he, he hobbles over to the middle, and, and he, he invites the children to come up and, and thinks, well, you know, I'll just ask them some questions. And so he asks them some questions. What does this mean, and what does this mean, and what does this mean, and so on. And then he says, what does repentance mean? And a bunch of the children would raise their hands, and one would say something like, um, isn't that when you feel guilty? And he says, well, yeah, sort of, but not exactly. And anybody else? And so another little child would raise their hand and say, well, isn't that when you feel bad about something? And yes, yeah, sort of, but not exactly. And, and isn't that sorry? Well, yes, yeah, sort of, but not exactly. And there's this little girl who's waving her head in the whole time, and, and he just kind of skipped over her because she was so young and thought, well, there's no way. But eventually, she's the only one waving her hand, and so he calls on her and he says to her, yes, dear, w- what do you think repentance is? And she says, isn't that when you're sorry enough to quit? And he says, yes, you know, that's exactly what repentance is. It's when you're sorry enough to quit. I think Jesus' sermon to us begins with this whole idea of repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. This is exactly what we hear right as we go into Lent, isn't it? Will you repent and believe the gospel? Yes, I will. Well, here's what it means. That we do not have to take the law to its very limits. That we can embrace the law as it's intended. Not to limit evil. Not to speak about how much someone can get away with. But to point towards the goodness that God designed for us to live in. That's the point of the law. And that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.